0: You know, we have to start by acknowledging that we are unholy by nature and we live in a world of unholiness. It's so much a part of the air that we breathe that we often aren't even aware of it. It's like a, it's like a fish who doesn't understand it's wet. We're so surrounded by this reality. A.W. Tozer put it this way, he said, we have learned to live with unholiness and have come to look upon it as the natural and expected thing. We are not disappointed that we do not find all truth in our teachers, our faithfulness in our politicians, our complete honesty in our merchants, our full trustworthiness in our friends. He goes on to say, quite literally, a new channel must be cut through the desert of our minds to allow the sweet waters of truth that can heal our great sickness to flow in. And then he adds this, only the spirit of the Holy One can impart to the human spirit the knowledge of the holy. And that happens through the Word of God. Sadly, even as believers, Christians who who call themselves by Christ's name, don't often understand what holiness is, how important it is, or how to pursue it. Holiness is not found, as many try to seek, in in emotional experiences, the exercise of spiritual gifts, including supposed miraculous ones, not in asceticism, and not in the sort of contemporary trend, just believing the gospel. J.C. Ryle, in his classic book, Holiness, writes, True holiness does not consist merely of inward sensations and impressions. It is much more than tears and sighs and bodily excitement and a quickened pulse and a passionate feeling of attachment to our favorite preachers and a readiness to quarrel with everyone who does not agree with us. He writes, It is something of the image of Christ, which can be seen and observed by others in our private life and habits and character and doing. Holiness is, in the end, conformity to the character of our God. Or in New Testament terms, it is likeness to Jesus Christ our Lord. As we'll discover in the other sessions to come, to be holy is not merely a monergistic work as salvation is. It's not God-only working. Instead, we must expend maximum effort to obey God's word while at the same time that we expend maximum effort depending entirely on Christ to enable that obedience and on his spirit to effect true and lasting changes in our souls." But Scripture consistently grounds our holiness in the holiness of God himself. So that if we want to be holy, we have to first understand his holiness. That's the focus of the two sessions tonight in this hour and then Dr. Lawson's in the hour to come. In this session, I want us to consider 1 Peter chapter 1. Turn there with me, 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to examine verses 14 to 16. The theme of 1 Peter is standing firm through suffering. Our text tonight is part of a larger paragraph that, that runs from chapter 1, verse 13, down through verse 21. Verse 13, you'll notice, begins with the word, therefore. This entire paragraph explains how you and I should live even in the midst of suffering, because of the sovereign grace of God in salvation that is described and celebrated in verses 3 through 12. This is our response then. We can outline verses 13 to 21 like this. We should respond in three ways. First of all, verse 13 we should live in hope. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the return of Christ. Verses 14 to 16, live in holiness. And then verses 17 to 21, live in holy fear. Let's read together chapter 1, verses 14 to 16. You follow along in your copy of God's word. These are the true and living words of the one true and living God. Verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. The theme of this paragraph is clearly expressed there in verse 16. You shall be holy. You is the second person plural pronoun. God is speaking and he says, To all of you who are my people, you shall be holy. But why does holiness matter? Woven through these verses that I just read, there are five reasons that you and I should and must pursue personal holiness. I'm going to briefly work through the first four, but we're going to spend most of our time on the fifth and final reason. So let's look at the first four. The first reason that you and I should pursue holiness is that holiness is the goal of God's electing love. Look at verse 14. It begins as children, as children. Peter is obviously referring to our adoption into God's family. Go back to chapter 1, verse 1. He ends verse 1 by talking about the reality that we as believers are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. That doesn't mean simply that God knew beforehand, it means he predetermined to have a relationship with us as father. God chose us because he had predetermined to love and adopt us. So in reminding us that we are God's children then, down in verse 14, Peter is reminding us of God's gracious electing love. And one of God's great purposes in choosing us for adoption was our holiness. Turn back to Ephesians chapter 1 in this classic text on election. Paul makes it so clear. He begins, of course, in verse 3 of Ephesians 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And then he turns to the Father's work in redemption, and specifically he focuses on election. And he says, he, that is the Father, chose. Election is sovereign. God chose. It is individual. God chose us. It is in Christ. He chose us in him. Election is unconditional. He chose us before the foundation of the world. And election is also intentional. From the middle of verse 4 down through verse 6, Paul identifies three purposes for God's choosing you, believer. Let's start with the second one in verse 5. He chose you for legal adoption. He predestined us, he predetermined our destiny to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. He wanted to adopt you as his child. He chose you to that end. The third purpose for God's choice is in verse 6. It's God's glory to the praise of the glory of His grace. But look back at verse 4 and you find the first purpose that Paul gives us here for election. He chose us so that we would be holy and blameless before Him. God chose us in eternity past so we would be holy. B.B. Warfield writes, there is no election to the rewards of glory which does not include in itself as the indispensable means to this end, election unto the works of grace. We are elected to make it possible for us to be good. Yes, rather to make it certain that we shall be good. Christian, God chose to set his love on you and to adopt you as his child so that you would be holy, so that as his child, you would become like your father. If you're a genuine believer and you love the father who has set his love upon you, who has given his son, who has redeemed you. Here is a huge reason for you to pursue holiness. Holiness is the goal of God's electing love. A second reason in our text that we should pursue holiness is that holiness is the result of the new birth. Holiness is the result of the new birth. Again, look at the beginning of verse 14. As obedient children. Now, I love the NAS. It's a great translation, but I think this translation can be a little misleading because the Greek text here literally reads, as children of obedience, as children of obedience. That's a nuance of difference, but it's an important one. Our translation sort of leads us to stress obedient conduct, and that's coming later in the text. But the original here stresses a character that is marked by obedience. That obedience is the natural consequence of our being his children, of our new nature. Ephesians 2.2 describes unbelievers as sons of disobedience. That's who we were. But with the new birth Obedience becomes the predominant characteristic of our new nature. The slavery to sin is broken. He writes his laws upon our hearts. He, he compels us to obedience. Peter refers to our new birth back in verse 3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again. And through that new birth, our new nature is now characterized by obedience. Once sons of disobedience, now we are children of obedience. Look back in verse 1. Again, notice what he says. We were chosen, verse 2, to obey Jesus Christ both in the gospel call as well as ongoing as his disciples. So down in verse 14 then, Peter is not commanding us here to obey. He will, but he is rather describing our new nature. We obey because of the new birth. You know, when you're born into a family, there are family resemblances. I'm the youngest of ten kids, five boys, five girls. My brothers and I all share this profile, this sort of British long-nosed profile, going back to the Romans. I've, I've seen like my forebears in, in the British Museum and in other places. <laughs> we share other common traits as well. As Christians, we are different in many ways, but because of the new birth, to some extent, we share the common trait of Holiness. Because holiness is a result of the new birth. A third reason for the believer's holiness is that holiness is the consequence of God's calling. Holiness is the consequence of God's calling. Look at verses 14 and 15. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Now, here we get to the practical imperatives of holiness. Let me just point these out to you. Uh, These these are going to be dealt with through the weekend. But the practical imperatives of holiness in verse 14, first of all, be holy in heart. Do not be conformed to. The Greek word has the idea of don't allow yourself to be pushed back into the mold of the former lusts which were yours when you were ignorant of God, when you were ignorant of his truth. So be holy in heart, that's the first practical imperative. The second practical imperative is be holy in conduct. Verse 15, but strong adversative. Like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Holiness transforms everything, every thought, every attitude, every word, every action. But notice, Peter connects our holiness here to another of God's gracious actions in our salvation. Look at verse 15. But like the Holy One who called you be holy yourselves. The word like points to God as the standard of holiness. Peter describes God as the one who called you. Of course, he's referring, as so often in the epistles, to the effectual call by which God calls sinners to himself through the gospel. He's he's saying this, listen, remember that the one who called you to himself on the day you came to Christ the one who called you through the gospel, who awakened your dead heart, who drew you to himself, that one himself is the holy one. He's the one who called you because he took the initiative and he called you to himself. Therefore, look down at chapter 2, verse 9. You are a holy nation, a people for God's own possession so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are to live in holiness that is fitting for those the Holy One has called out of darkness into his marvelous light. Peter's fourth reason is that holiness is the command of Scripture. Notice verse 16, "'Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy.'" Literally, because it has been written. It stands written. It's permanent. This is a timeless, inviolable truth of the moral universe. This, by the way, is Peter's first quotation from the Old Testament in this letter. And this quote occurs in several places in the book of Leviticus. You know, the the place where New Year's resolutions to read through the Bible go to die. And that's a shame because that's a a beautifully wonderful book. The theme of the book of Leviticus is holiness. And the first half tells us that the only way to approach a holy God is through sacrifice. And the second half tells us that the only way to walk with a holy God is to walk in holiness. The word holy occurs more often in Leviticus than any other book, over 90 times. Over 50 times, the motive for holiness is expressed as, I am Yahweh. I am your God. And five times, the motive for holiness is because I am holy. Holiness is clearly not a new requirement. It's always been God's requirement for his people. And a compelling argument for our holiness is that the Scripture, Old and New Testament, repeatedly commands this of God's people. Now that brings us to the fifth and final reason for holiness and where I want to focus the rest of our time together. And that is this. Holiness is the character of our God. Holiness is the character of our God. Verse 16 says, because it is written, you shall be holy for I myself am holy. Our passage actually builds to this. It builds to this quotation from Leviticus, and it builds to God's own assertion about his character. I myself am holy. The primary reason that we should pursue holiness is the character of God himself, God's own perfect holiness. Notice, by the way, that God does not say be holy as I am holy, an impossibility since he alone is absolutely holy. Rather, we are to be holy for or because our God is holy. Our holiness as his people is grounded in God's own holiness. What does it mean to be holy? The primary Hebrew word for holy is kodesh from the root that means to separate. Holy means to be set apart, to be distinct, to be different. The Greek words hagias and hagiadzo carry the same idea. In its ceremonial sense, the Hebrew word described things set apart from the, the mundane and profane for special use. It's used of persons, angels are called holy, priests are called holy, prophets, kings, Israel. It's used of places. Mount Sinai, Mount Zion, Israel's land. It's used of objects, the tabernacle, the altar, the sacrifices, the temple. How are they holy? Well, a temple is holy because it is different from other buildings. It has been set apart from others for a particular reason. Priests are holy because they are different from other men. Sacrificial animals are holy because they're different from other animals. But when we say God is holy, what do we mean? We mean God is himself different from every creature and everything in his creation. God's holiness is one of his attributes, or better, one of his perfections. But in one sense, holiness is unique. Gerhardus Voss puts it this way. He says it's not really an attribute to be coordinated with the other attributes distinguished in the divine nature. It is something coextensive with and applicable to everything that can be predicated of God. He is holy in everything that characterizes him and reveals him. Holy in his goodness, holy in his grace, no less than in his righteousness and wrath. God is separate from, distinct from creation and humanity. You see, although God is imminent, that is, he is approachable, he is accessible to us as Abba Father, Scripture also teaches that God is transcendent. He is exalted far above all things. When we say God is transcendent, we mean that he is unparalleled, he is unrivaled, he is unequaled, he is incomparable. And his transcendence is captured in the perfection we call his holiness. Now, God is holy or transcendent in two related but distinct ways. He is separate or transcendent in his majesty and in his purity. Scripture uses the same word groups for both concepts. Holiness describes both his separateness from us as creatures and from us as sinners. So let's take that apart for a moment. First of all, when we say God is holy, we mean that he is separate or transcendent in his majesty. He is separate or transcendent in his majesty. He is distinct from, exalted above everything else in the universe. Exodus 15, 11, who is like you among the gods, O Yahweh? Who is like you, majestic in holiness? 1 Samuel 2, 2 puts it so beautifully, there is no one holy like the Lord. Indeed, and here's a definition of holiness in this sense, there is no one besides you. Isaiah 40, verse 25, to whom then will you liken me that I should be as equal, says the Holy One. Hosea 11:9 I am God and not man the holy one in your midst God is exalted in his absolute perfect majesty beyond what you and I could ever imagine or conceive but when we get just a glimpse of it in God's revelation we respond like Job did after those four chapters of God lecturing him about his greatness We also heard of him by the hearing of the ear, but when we see him in the pages of Scripture, we repent in dust and ashes. When we say God is holy, we not only mean, however, that he is separate or transcendent in his majesty, we also mean he is separate or transcendent in his moral purity. Just as he is distinct from his creation, he is also distinct from sin and sinners. This is really the focus of 1 Peter 1, and it's it's my focus primarily in this session. God is perfect in his moral purity. A.W. Tozer again writes, holy is the way God is. To be holy, he does not conform to a standard. He is that standard. He is absolutely holy with an infinite, incomprehensible fullness of purity that is incapable of being any other than it is when we say God is separate or transcendent in his moral purity, we're really, again, making two declarations about God. So let's take the the reality of his moral purity and break it down into two basic declarations that we're making about God. Positively, we're saying, to, to borrow the words of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, we are saying positively that he is infinitely, eternally, and unchangeably morally perfect. He is morally perfect. Matthew five forty eight. Jesus says, your heavenly Father is perfect. Just let that settle into your minds for a moment. Your heavenly Father is perfect. But negatively, when we talk about his transcendent majestic purity, negatively we're saying that he is infinitely, eternally, and unchangeably separate from sin. James 1.13, let no one say when he's tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. There's one New Testament passage that equally stresses both of these declarations about God the positive one, that he is morally perfect, and the negative one, that he is without sin. And I want us to turn there and see it. Turn back with me to 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. John writes, This is the message. 1 John one five. This is the message. John uses that expression several times in his letter the way it's constructed in greek emphasizes both the continuing existence and the importance of this message this is a crucial foundational truth that the apostles received from christ our lord about our god this is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that here's the content of the of the message the apostles had heard from jesus God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. It's one unified message, but it consists of two parts that make exactly the same two declarations about God we just mentioned a moment ago. Let's look at it, first of all, positively. Positively, our Lord teaches us here that God is morally perfect. Verse 5 says, this is the message, God is perfect light. This is one of three assertions that John makes about the nature of God. In John 4, 24, he says God is spirit. 1 John 4, 8, and 16, God is love. And here in 1 John 1, 5, God is light. It explains what God is inherently. This is his nature. John remembered Jesus, our Lord, making this statement along with similar ones such as in John 17, 11, where Jesus refers to God as Holy Father. Our Lord didn't teach his disciples that our God has light or gives light, but that God is light. God's nature is light. There is no other figure in the material world that could present the idea of perfection so clearly and fully as light. But what does it mean that God in his nature is light? Well, in John's gospel and here in his first letter, he uses light and darkness in two primary ways. Sometimes he uses it intellectually. Light is truth and darkness is falsehood and error. John 8, 12, for example, he he uses that play. Other times he uses these these two words, light and darkness, morally, and light is is moral purity or holiness and darkness is evil and sin and here in our in this passage that that's clearly what he's emphasizing because sin is the darkness in this passage so therefore the emphasis here is on God's moral perfection God's moral perfection think about this for a moment God's moral perfection is like blazing blinding white light without even the slightest shadow Every thought God has ever had, every word he has ever spoken, every single action God has ever taken perfectly corresponds to his own holy character. God is holy. He is morally perfect, the sum of all moral excellence. Stephen Charnock writes, Power is God's hand or arm omniscience his eye eternity his duration but holiness is his beauty holiness is his beauty so positively then john teaches us here that god is morally perfect but negatively he teaches us that god is completely without sin look again at verse five of first john one god is light there's the positive side here's the negative and in him There is no darkness at all. Now, this is not redundant. It's making a further point about God's nature. Literally, the Greek text reads, and this is wooden, but I think you'll get something of the flow. Literally, it reads this way, And darkness in him not is not at all. Darkness here is sin. And the last Greek word in that sentence literally means not one. There's not one bit of darkness in God, not a single trace of darkness, not one sin ever. You see, in our universe, there are degrees of light and darkness. Think about it. You go outside here in the Texas summer when it's uh, 105, and there's not a cloud in the sky, and it's, it's noon, and the sun is at its highest and brightest point, And even though you can't even look at the sun for a moment without it temporarily blinding you, you look around you on this planet and there are shadows. Even on the surface of the sun, the brightest thing that you and I experience in our world, there are sunspots that are darker. But John wants us to know that God isn't like that. He is light unlike any we know. There's not even a hint of a shadow in God's character. He is nothing but light. He is utterly separate from sin and evil. That's why God hates sin and must punish all that is sinful. Psalm 5 verses 4 through 6 You are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. You destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. Psalm 11, verses 5 through 7. The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked, and the one who loves violence, his soul hates Upon the wicked he will rain snares. Fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. The upright will behold his face. Habakkuk 1.13, your eyes are too pure to approve evil. And you cannot look on wickedness with favor. God hates sin and must punish all that is sinful. And because of that, he can have no fellowship with a sinner. Psalm 24, verses 3 and 4, who may ascend into the hill of Yahweh and who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Isaiah 59, 2, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Now, let's be honest. This is a shock to many Contemporary American evangelicals. In fact, A.W. Pink writes this The God which the vast majority of professing Christians love is looked upon very much like an indulgent old man who himself has no relish for folly but leniently winks at the indiscretions of youth. But the word says, You hate all who do iniquity. If you doubt that, just think for a moment about the greatest illustration of the holiness of God in human history. It's the cross where a holy God punished his own son when he bore our sins in his own body on the tree. Tragically, the unbelievers around us do not believe in God's holiness. They blindly hope. And and maybe you're here tonight and you have some thought that, that God's love is somehow going to override everything else. Listen, God's response to that is found in Psalm 50 verse 21. You thought that I was just like you. And he's not. So why is God morally compelled to hate evil? Why? There are a couple of clues to that. One of them is interesting. We we can see it even in the English word for holy. The English word holy comes from the Anglo-Saxon word halig, from how, which means whole or well. That that word and the reason it made it's, its way into English that way is it's making the point that to be holy is to be spiritually healthy. And evil is a moral illness that leads to death. Again, one author writes, "...since God's first concern for his universe is its moral health, that is its holiness, whatever is contrary to this is necessarily under his eternal displeasure. To preserve his creation, God must destroy whatever would destroy it. The holiness of God, the wrath of God, and the health of the creation are inseparably united." God's wrath is his utter intolerance of whatever degrades and destroys. He hates iniquity as a mother hates the polio that takes the life of her child. But we can go even further. The ultimate reason that some things are morally right and others are morally wrong, is our God's character. And the fact that there are moral absolutes is because of our God's unchanging character. And God rightly delights in all that reflects his holy character, and he rightly hates all that is contrary to his holy character. So when we say that God is separate or transcendent in his purity... Let it sink into your mind what that means. It means that God is positively, morally perfect. He is light. It also means negatively that he is completely without sin and therefore has no toleration for sin whatsoever. He hates it. It is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Let me give you, as we close this session together, three implications of our study tonight, three implications that grow out of what we have learned. Number one, God's holiness demands that he must first redeem a sinner to have a relationship with him. God's holiness demands that he must first redeem a sinner to have a relationship with him. Turn over a few pages, if you're still in 1 John, to 1 John 4, verse 9. These verses are not quite as famous as John 3, 16, but they make the same point, and in many ways more precisely. 1 John 4, verse 9, By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God had sent his only begotten Son into the world. Here it is, so that we might live through him. We who were spiritually dead might come to life. We might have a relationship with our creator. And then he adds, and this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and he sent his son to be the propitiation, to be the satisfaction of his just wrath against our sins. When did that happen? Happened on the cross. Paul writes in the very center of Romans as he lays out the gospel that at the cross, God publicly displayed Jesus as the propitiation for our sins. That's why the cross. God's holiness demanded that our sins be punished. Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. This is why on the cross, during those three hours of darkness, Jesus cried out using the words of Psalm 22, one. my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? After that loud cry, it's very likely that our Lord continued to quote the words of that messianic psalm in his own heart. Because the answer to his cry comes just two verses later. The cry, verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The answer comes in Psalm 22:3, You are holy, O you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. Because of Christ's death, you and I can now take refuge from God's holy hatred of sin in God's grace poured out through the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, if you're here tonight and you have never repented of your sins and believed in Jesus Christ, don't believe the lie that God grades on a curve, that you're going to make it to the judgment and somehow you're going to sneak in because you're good enough. God is perfectly holy. He hates sin and he hates your rebellion against him. And the only way that he as a holy God can allow you into his holy presence is if he first redeems you and makes you his own through his son. He sent his son, as we just read a moment ago, into the world to bear the sins of his people on the cross so that God could be just and still forgive our sins so that his holiness would be unsullied. You must repent of your sin. You must turn from those things that are contrary to the holy nature of the God who created you and gives you life and you must believe that gospel. It's the only way that unholy sinners like us can ever be reconciled to a holy God. It's through his son and his son's life, death, and resurrection. There's a second implication, and that is God's holiness demands holiness of all who want to have fellowship with him. Go back to 1 John 1. This is the very point he makes here in context. Verse 5, God is light. There's no darkness in him. Verse 6, if we are saying, if we are claiming that we have fellowship with God, that we know God, and we're living in fellowship with God, and yet we are habitually walking in the darkness in sin, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we are walking in the light as the pattern of our lives, as He Himself is in the light, then we truly have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, keeps on cleansing us from all sin. You see, you can't know the God whose character is holy and completely without sin and continue to love and live in your sin. Be holy for I am holy. As his children, he calls us to imitate him. Matthew five forty eight, our Lord says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Ephesians 5, 1, be imitators of God as beloved children. He demands that as his children whom he's redeemed, that we reflect his values, his priorities, his thoughts, his attitudes, and we act as he would act, as he would want us to act. You say, what does that look like? Well, you're going to learn more about that through the weekend. But let me just say it this way. If you want to see what holiness looks like in real life, then there are several ways you can get there. Study God's moral law. Study the the two great commandments to love God with all your heart and to love others. Meditate On the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, which is the fruit the Spirit produces. Why? Because it's a reflection of the character of our God. And above all, study the life of our Lord, the perfect reflection of God's holiness. A third implication is that God's ultimate goal in making you holy is the exaltation of His Son. God's ultimate goal in making you holy is the exaltation of his Son. You see, Jesus our Lord manifested God's holiness perfectly. In John 6, 69, Peter said to Christ, We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. We see God's holiness most clearly in Jesus Christ. To be holy then is to be like Jesus Christ. And folks, here's the punchline. That has always been the Father's plan. Turn to Romans. Romans chapter 8, verse 29. For those whom he, the Father, foreknew, that is those he predetermined to have a relationship with, He also predestined. He predetermined the destiny of those he determined to have a relationship with, those on whom he set his love. And what is that destiny? What is your destiny, Christian? To become conformed to the image of his son. God wants us to be holy because he wants us to be like his son. That's why he chose us in eternity past. But why does he want us to be like Jesus Look back at Romans eight twenty nine. He predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son so that, here's the reason, so that Christ would be the firstborn, the preeminent one among many brethren. You see, the goal of the eternal plan of redemption was to create a redeemed humanity that would be just like Jesus. Redeemed sinners who will forever love him and worship him, and over whom he will reign graciously as our shepherd king forever. Christian, God chose us so that we would be holy, so that we would be just like Jesus in our moral characters. And through our likeness to Jesus, And through our love and worship of Jesus, two things would happen. First of all, Jesus will be forever exalted and glorified as we reflect his perfect image. And secondly, we have the great privilege of enjoying eternal fellowship with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Those are the ultimate goals of our holiness. Holiness is about the exaltation of Jesus Christ our Lord by reflecting His moral character in ours. And it's about the eternal fellowship that in God's amazing grace, we get to have with Him. You shall be holy, for I am holy. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are in awe of your great eternal plan. Thank you that we are swept up in that eternal plan as you seek to express your love to your Son by giving him a redeemed humanity that will forever praise him and glorify him by reflecting his own moral character. Father, We are overwhelmed by your sovereign grace. We're overwhelmed by the plan that you could use us, sinful rebels, who once hated you, who once were consumed with ourselves, but whom you have gloriously saved, whom you have adopted as your own sons and daughters to the end, that we would be holy. That we would be just like you. That we would be just like your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that we unimaginably would get to enjoy fellowship with you now. And perfectly for eternity. Lord, help us as your people to be holy. For you are We pray in the name of our Savior and Lord. Amen.